If you wish to become a complete and wise leader, you must embrace a larger view of the force. Welcome, everyone. My name is Devore, and you are listening to episode 22 of Larger View of the Force, a Star Wars podcast. A reminder, as always, if this is your first time listening, please go and check out the earlier episodes of this show. And make sure you hit that subscribe button so that you keep up to date with new episodes as they come out. On today's episode, which was supposed to come out in June, but life happens, I'll be counting down my top 10 one-and-done characters from the Star Wars movies. There are a lot of great characters who show up in one film and then leave in that exact same film, and I want to talk about some of them, about their movie appearances, about their appearances in other Star Wars media, and so on. My goal in making this list was for it to both be an accurate reflection of my own preferences, while also drawing from all eras of Star Wars as much as possible. The prequels, the OT, the sequels, the anthology films. So without further ado, let's dive in, starting with number 10. From The Rise of Skywalker, it is Allegiant General Unric Pride. I really like General Pride. Uh, first off, we get a great performance by Richard E. Grant, who is just amazing in whatever role he gets put in. You know, this episode is coming out just after Loki finished up its first season. He was great in his appearance there as the classic Loki. He is even great as the asshole art collector in Down Abbey. Absolutely love Richard E. Grant. I was really glad that they managed to get him into Star Wars, and I just love the enthusiasm that he had for the role and for the movie in the kind of run-up to it. So yeah, first and foremost, great casting there, great choice to bring in Richard E. Grant into that role. But second, I also really like the character, even though we don't have much about him yet at this moment. We haven't seen him really showing up in any other media except for The Rise of Skywalker and the novelization and such. I think there's a lot of potential with this character, and that's really why he ended up in the top 10 list. So first off, in terms of his personality, his mannerism, there's a little bit of Tarkin in there. I think that's very clear. There's also a little bit of Thrawn. There's some of that strategic calculating mindset. You know, you have that first scene that we see him in, in the conference room scene with all the other kind of first order head honchos where they're talking about the final order and everything. And he's really kind of sticking up for aligning with the final order and with Palpatine. And he's talking about how the fleet of star destroyers is going to be able to, you know, project the power and strength of the first order across the galaxy. And he talks about how, like, this will correct the error of Starkiller base. So it's a little bit, there's a little bit of harkening back to, you know, if we go all the way back to Star Wars Rebels and the back and forth between Tarkin and Project Stardust and Thrawn and the TIE Defenders, right? Do you pour all of your money and resources into this one big gun, essentially, or do you instead invest in these ships in this fleet that can kind of spread out all across the galaxy? And there's a little bit of that 
thinking in pride that was there with Thrawn also. Like, don't put all your chickens in the one pot of the Death Star. Invest in the TIE Fighters. And you kind of see that with the way that Pride is kind of looking down on Starkiller Base and thinking, you know, these Star Destroyers are really going to be the thing that will allow the First Order to, you know, become a true empire. So I like that element to him. The other thing that I really like about Pride is that he's our link back to the old Imperial generation. So the OG generation of those members of the Empire who, after the Battle of Endor, after the Battle of Jakku, kind of fled into the Unknown Regions and then helped kind of constitute the First Order. We don't have a ton of those by the time we get to the sequel trilogy. I think technically, I remember, I think looking up his entry on Wikipedia, I think like Captain Kennedy, I think it said, was maybe an ex-Imperial. But for the large part, by the time we're getting into the sequel trilogy, we're for the most part looking at the kind of up-and-coming generation. So, you know, we're looking at the Armitage Hucks, and we're looking at your Phasmas and your Kylo Rens. So a lot of that old guard is gone by this point, dead, pushed out, purged, we don't really know. And then you've got this guy, Pride, who is still very clearly there, as we see in that scene when he is communicating with Palpatine over the hologram when he talks about, as I served you in the old order, I serve you now. So I like being able to see those kind of remnants of the empire, of the kind of original founders of the first order still being around and still occupying these positions of leadership. And, you know, one of my hopes for this character for Pride is that we're going to get other content, whether it's novels, whether it's comics, where we're going to be able to see him in the Imperial era, either in the original trilogy period or maybe in that 30, 35 year period right now, which is still hasn't been fully fleshed out. So I would really like to see him and see, you know, what was he doing during the Galactic Empire and so on. And sort of continuing on that point about like, the old guard versus the new guard. Like, I'm really, really interested in this generational split and divide within the First Order. I think that's something that's really a rich territory, a rich vein that Star Wars content, particularly in books and comics, can explore more. One of my real hopes for you know, what I want to see out of Star Wars moving forward, or one of the areas that I want them to explore, is really the rise of the First Order. We've gotten some of that. We get to see some of the early seeds of the First Order. We're starting to see some of that in, let's say, The Mandalorian, something like that. And some of that content about that those first few years after Return of the Jedi. Then we also see it on kind of the back end with something like Claudia Gray's bloodline, where we're starting to see the machinations of the First Order and the way that they're starting to rise. But again, I sort of referenced this a few minutes ago. There's that whole middle period that hasn't really been fully explored, and we don't really know what's going on there. You know, how do we go from the old guard? How do we go from people like Pride and Ray Sloan and Nash Windrider and so on to your Armitage Hucks to your Phasmas, to eventually like a Supreme Leader Snoke and et cetera and so on. That transition has yet to be described and fleshed out. And that's something that I'm really, really interested in, particularly about the rise of Snoke. You know, there are a lot of people who are saying in the aftermath of the rise of Skywalker that they kind of lost interest in Snoke after finding out that, oh, he's just this puppet of Palpatine. He was just this creation by 
the Sith Eternal and Exegol, that in a way makes me even more interested in knowing about his origins, and particularly not just whatever relationship he may or may not have had with Palpatine and the cultists, but then also how does he go from this creation in a vat on Exegol to actually leading this whole army? Because you've already got this whole leadership, presumably. You know, you've got your race loans, you've got your honorific pride, you've got all these people, and then you've got this guy, Snoke, who at one point or another just kind of comes out of the woodwork and takes command. How does he do that? So I really want to see that story told, and I really want to see the story of what I think was probably happening in the early First Order, which is this intergenerational struggle between the old guard and the up-and-comers. Or at least, like, if I could create a Star Wars wish list, I would at least say this is the way I want that story told. Basically, how do we go from the ex-imperials to all these new people that you've got, on the one hand, your race loan types who are trying to build the First Order, and then you've got, you know, you've got your young Turks, you've got the younger people kind of rising up post-Empire who have no connection to history of the Empire who are looking at some of the old guard and saying, why should we follow you? You guys lost the war. You're the reason the empire collapsed. You weren't able to defeat the rebels. We should take charge. We should be in control. And hey, we should rally around this new guy, Snoke. Like He's the future. He's the one who's going to kind of bring back the glory days, not you guys, because you guys lost it in the first place. So that kind of story, I would really be interested in getting told. And I'm like, how does somebody like a pride, how does he survive that intergenerational struggle, that power politics and all that? How does he manage to cling on this whole time while all of these younger people are kind of rising up to the surface? So I think there's a lot of potential with Pride, and I really, really hope that he is a character that gets used more in Star Wars media that that both explores more of the period of the sequel trilogy, but that also explores this interregnum period between the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy. So yeah, I choose him in part because I like him in The Rise of Skywalker. I think he's really interesting in there, and also because I think there's a lot more that can be done with him. All right, so that's Pride. So let's now move on to number nine. From Solo, a Star Wars story, it is Emphis Nest. Emphis Nest is, in my opinion, the most interesting character in Solo, a Star Wars story. Certainly the most promising character. Now, technically, there is another character from Solo that is on this list that ranks higher. And I will talk about why I have ranked that particular person higher than Emphis Nest. But even so, I will still give Emphis Nest the rank of the most interesting, the most fascinating character to come out of that movie. She's on this list for similar reasons that Pride is on this list, both for what we get out of her in her actual movie, and then also for the potential that she has as a character moving forward. So I really, really like the way that the movie uses Emphis Nest. The movie does a great job of pulling this bait and switch on us when it comes to Emphis Nest and the Cloud Riders. Because basically throughout all of the movie, until we get to that final scene on Savarine, we are meant to see her and the Cloud Riders as villains. We don't even know that she's a she until that final scene. So we look at them as pirates, as marauders, as the threats to our heroes, to Han and Chewie and to Beckett and so on. 
And then it's not until that final scene, until that standoff that happens over the Coaxium, that we learn that actually they're rebels and that they're trying to get the Coaxium for the struggle against the Empire and that they're trying to keep it away from the real villains, which is Crimson Dawn and the syndicates and so on. So I like the way that you get that switch pulled, where we get one impression of who we think Empress Ness and the Cloud Riders are, and then all of that gets turned upside down on its head. And then also what happens with Emphis Nest herself, where again, because of the suit, because of the mask, because of the voice and all that, we are kind of predisposed to think, oh, this is like some big menacing person. And then the helmet comes off and it turns out to be this young woman. And again, kind of flipping that on its head, right, from taking the, the version of Emphis Nest that we've seen up to that movie, up to that point where visually she looks like a threat. She looks like a villain to once you take off the helmet and then you see her face. And then just by that act alone, just by the physicality of Amphis Ness and what she really looks like under the mask, almost immediately we have this link in our brain. We get this signal in our head that's saying, oh, she's not a threat. She's an ally. She's good. Just because we can see her face and see what she really looks like. I think there's some really interesting work there with masks and faces and so on and so forth that again there's a lot of that in star wars whether you're talking about kylo ren whether you're talking about captain phasma whether you're talking about darth vader and so on and so forth i think emphasis is another great example of the way that that device gets used to communicate certain impressions that we are supposed to have about certain characters at one point in the story versus at at another point in that story You know, I just talked about Pride and some of the potential I think that he has in terms of the future of Star Wars storytelling, but I gotta say, of everyone on this list, Emphis Nest is the character I most want more stories about. There is, of course, larger canon material. She appears elsewhere. We get to see her, I think, in one of the comics when she meets a young Jyn Erso. So there have been other places where we've gotten to see bits and pieces of Memphis Nest, but I want a lot more. I want to learn more about her mom. I want to learn more about the Cloud Riders and their history and where they come from and also their future. You know, how are they involved with the rebellion kind of moving forward as we get closer into the Rebels period and into the original trilogy? What are they up to? And frankly, you know, to pull in some of the new stuff that has been happening in terms of the High Republic, I would love for there to be some sort of connection between the Cloud Riders and the Nile, because I think it's there. I think there's it would be too much of a coincidence. There's too many similarities in terms of both the language that they're using, the notion of Cloud Riders, which is terminology that we see with the Nile, in terms of their look, in terms of their reputation as bandits and marauders and pirates. So I want that explored. I really think that I have a feeling that there's going to be something done with that. I don't know if it's going to be a case of where the Cloud Riders are direct descendants of the Nile in one form or another. Maybe they're descended from some breakaway faction of the Nile or something like that. Or if it's just a case where this group of people formed and got together and they knew of the Nile, they knew of their reputation and so on, and just kind of appropriated their look and lingo. Whatever it is, whatever the case may be, I really hope that we learn at some point through some sort of media that there is a connection between those two groups. I think that would be really cool in terms of 
again, kind of stitching together the Star Wars galaxy and kind of pulling in some of this material that's outside of the time period of the Skywalker saga, but then showing its connections hundreds of years down the line into the period with which we are most familiar. So I think that would be really, really great. So yeah, I want a lot more emphasis on this content, whether that's in a follow-up to Solo, whether that is her own book, comics, whatever. Give us more about her. Give us more about her mother. Give us more about the Cloud Riders. Absolutely. All right, that is Emphasis Nest. So now let us move on to number eight. From The Last Jedi, it is Vice Admiral Amalyn Holdo. So probably of everyone on this list, Holdo may be the most maligned character, at least in terms of if you take like the 30,000 foot view of Star Wars and you look at basically fans across a kind of range and spectrum of opinions, I think she is the one on this list probably who has come in for the most hate, the most controversy. However, it will no doubt surprise you because she is on this list. I do not think that any of that hate directed towards the character in the year since the release of The Last Jedi is warranted because I think that she plays an excellent role in this story. I think she's a really, really important figure in terms of driving forward the story of our main characters. You know, this is not at all a kind of profound observation to make about the character, but she's there as a foil to Poe. And I think she performs that role in some really, really important ways. One of the big themes of The Last Jedi, arguably I would say the big theme of The Last Jedi, is about failure. The greatest teacher failure is. That is the moral of The Last Jedi. There's a lot of people who have taken the moral of The Last Jedi to be what Kylo Ren says, which is, let the past die, kill it if you have to. No. That is not the moral of The Last Jedi. The moral of The Last Jedi comes to us from that amazing, amazing, wonderful scene between Luke and Yoda and Octo when he tells him the greatest teacher failure is, heeded my words, not did you. That is the moral of The Last Jedi. And each of our characters, each of the main characters that we look at, have to deal with failure in one form or another. Whether you're talking about Rey, whether you're talking about Finn and Rose, whether you're talking about Luke, and also when you're talking about Poe. The way that Holdo, of course, fits into that is that she is the one who makes Poe feel the consequences of his dreadnought attack. He goes in at the beginning of the movie. Leia tells him not to do it, that it's too much of a risk. He goes for the attack. They take down the dreadnought, but in the process, they lose a big chunk of their fleet. And because of that, Poe gets demoted because he was being too reckless. And then, of course, what we see in the movie is that after the Radis is destroyed by the First Order and Admiral Akbar is killed, and a lot of the resistance leadership is killed, and Leia is incapacitated. You get that scene where they're all kind of huddled around and talking about all of the losses, and then talking about basically, you know, who's going to lead the resistance, kind of such as it is moving forward. And what you see in that scene, in terms of the cutaways that we get to Poe as he's kind of watching and listening, you can clearly see on his face that and in his subsequent reaction that despite everything that had happened at the beginning of the movie, despite the failure and the losses because of his decision to lead the attack on the Dreadnought, he still sincerely believes that he's going to be given leadership. Like, he does not at all register, even though he's already been demoted, 
he still thinks that, oh, now in this vacuum, he is going to be given command. And then it's this kind of slap in the face to him from his perspective when it instead goes to Vice Admiral Holdo of the cruiser Ninka. The other thing that you see immediately in that scene when she gets announced and then when he goes to goes over to kind of talk to her after, you know, she gives her a little like speech or briefing is that you can tell he doesn't totally regard her as a superior. So he turns to the I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but he turns to the one resistance pilot and he's like, that's like Vice Admiral Holdo, like Battle of Chiron Belt Admiral Holdo. He's like, huh, really? Like that was very clearly not who he had in mind in terms of who this person was i even wonder like again it's not like it's not clear in the movie and again if like if this is spelled out in the novelization you know apologies for that because i haven't read the last jedi novelization i'm assuming that he knew holdo was a woman i don't know if that's kind of factoring and also that because of hearing about her battlefield exploits he assumed that she was a man again i would kind of presume that he would at least, even if he hasn't met her up to this point i would figure he would at least know that but again it's a little ambiguous in the movie and i don't know if that's spelled out in any other canon material elsewhere but in any event regardless of whether or not gender is kind of factoring in it's still pretty clear that he particularly when he goes up to her and starts talking to her after the briefing and he's asking her about what the next move is going to be for the resistance the way that he's talking to her his mannerisms his body language all that like he's talking to her he's really treating her as though she were a kind of fellow colleague and not his immediate superior holdo to her credit i will emphasize that to her credit she puts poe into his place she refuses to tell him about her plan for the resistance about as we learn the eventual plan to get to crate and to hide out there until the first order goes away now in the aftermath of the release of the last jedi and i would say probably i think this is still something that lingers on at least in some corners ever since is a lot of people have asked about well why doesn't she just tell him the plan because, of course, what we see in the movie is that Holdo doesn't tell him what she has in mind. Then he basically goes off and kind of you know blows her off, disregards her. And then he's like, well, I'm going to try to figure out how to save the resistance myself. And that's how we get all the Canto Bite stuff and all of that. And then all the fall that comes from that. And so a lot of people point out and say, well, if she just told him that, oh, we're going to go to this planet crate, then he would have just sat on his hands and you wouldn't have had any of the stuff with DJ or any of the, you know, the destruction of the resistance fleet once the first order kind of gets wind of what their plan is and so on. This, however, is not the right question, though, in my opinion. I can see, you know, from looking at the whole arc of the movie and what all of the characters do, why that would be a question that people would think to themselves and pose and why, you know, when they look at Holdo's actions in the movie, they would look back from the vantage point at the end of the movie and say, oh, well, she was behaving irrationally because if she just told them, then none of this would have happened. However, it is important to remember, and I've used this line once before, and I think I credit it to Andrew Gehau from Outer Rim Reads, and I think he was absolutely right when he said it. I'm pretty sure other people have said it also, but Star Wars characters don't know they're in Star Wars. We can't evaluate. This is something, this is something that Star Wars fans do fairly often that I think bugs me sometimes, which is that we have a tendency to evaluate characters and their decisions and their actions by taking what I call the view from Star Wars, which is to say we look at 
at the 30,000 foot level, we look at the whole scope of the canon, everything we know about storylines and where the story's going to go and what we know about the characters. And then we impute all of that onto individual character decisions and psychology and so on. And then we say, well, why did the character do that when we know this over here? It's important to get out of the view from Star Wars and instead to look at what our characters are doing and the decision that they're making from their perspective, through their eyes, and ask from that vantage point, do their actions make sense? Not from the view from Star Wars. And I would submit that once you look at the events of The Last Jedi from Holdo's perspective, particularly the beginning of the movie from Holdo's perspective, her actions make sense. And her decisions to keep Poe in the dark are fairly rational. Because think about it. Her expectation from Poe is that he will sit tight. Right? From her point of view, he's a subordinate. And he's supposed to do what, as he's told. So when she tells him, we have a plan, but it's need to know. And you're not need to know. That's essentially what she tells him in so many words. Her expectation in that moment is that, oh, he's just going to go off in the corner and he's going to sit and wait until he gets his orders. She's not thinking, oh, if I don't tell him, then he's going to go off and do his own plan and then it's going to lead to this great big disaster. So she's not thinking that, like, telling him or not telling him is the difference between some great tragedy happening or not. She, her own expectation is he's just going to do what everybody else is supposed to do. The expectation of everybody else who is under her in the resistance pecking order, which is he's just going to stand by and wait for his orders. Now, Poe doesn't do that, but that's on Poe. That's not on Holdo. It's Poe who goes off and makes the decision that he's just going to disregard Holdo. But it's not Holdo's fault that he does that. In addition, as we just talked about, Poe just cost the resistance a significant chunk of their fleet. As she herself points out to him, he was just demoted. Leia's last official act was to demote him for the attack on the Dreadnoughts. So he's not entitled to be in the know because he just screwed up in a big way that cost them a bunch of pilots and a bunch of ships and led him to being demoted. So why would she then turn around to this character and say, oh, well, here's everything that I have in mind and let me, you know, let me pull you into the inner circle and you're going to know all of my plans and my schemes and what I want to do. You're not going to do that to the person who just proved that they're irresponsible and they just cost lives. From her point of view, again, not taking the view from Star Wars, but taking her point of view and looking at these events through her eyes, keeping Poe in the dark makes sense. And everything that Poe does subsequently is on him because he refuses to just sit tight and wait for orders and to get the information that he needs to know when he needs to know it. So that's really important. We have to look at these things through the lens of what the characters know and what the characters expect, not from our own omniscient view. Okay, so there's all that. The other thing to bring up about the character of Haldo that I really, really like in this movie and that is also fleshed out in other material is her relationship with Leia. 
And that's one that we learn in other material, particularly uh, Leia, Princess of Alderaan, that they have a relationship going all the way back to the Imperial Senate and to the Rebellion back in the original trilogy period. And we also even get to see some of that in this movie, albeit not much because Leia is out for a big chunk of this movie. But I think even those few, the few minutes that we get towards the end of the movie, just before Haldo makes her sacrifice, I'm going to talk about that in a sec. Just that ex brief exchange that they have before Leia gets on the escape craft. I think both from, from an acting perspective, both Laura Dern and Carrie Fisher really sell that bond. You really believe when you watch those two actresses engage with one another that these are characters who have known each other for many years, that have fought alongside each other for many years, and that they have this deep and important friendship. I think... That is a great little acting moment there where in just a few minutes and not a lot of screen time with not a lot of dialogue, you immediately buy in that these are two characters who have known each other for a long time and have a lot of respect for each other. So I think that is a great kind of testament to the acting of both Laura Dern and Carrie Fisher in that scene. And then, of course, the big thing that Holdo is known for, which is the Holdo maneuver. Absolutely brilliant Unlike anything that we had seen in Star Wars in that moment, I mean, I still remember the first time going in the theater to see The Last Jedi, and then when you you and the audience are discovering what she's doing at the same time that the characters on screen, that the people in the First Order are discovering what she's doing, and then when it goes through and the music cuts out and all the sound cuts out, I just remember when it goes through and you get the, you know, the brilliant lighting and color work of the way that the ship kind of cracks through all of the ships and the fleet behind the supremacy. I remember just hearing someone, maybe it was behind me, or maybe it was in front of me. I don't know exactly. I just heard someone go, whoa. Just an amazing, amazing singular moment, not just in the sequel trilogy, but in all of Star Wars. And that is given to us by this great character, Aimelin Holdo. So yes, number eight, one and done character, Vice Admiral Holdo. All right, number seven. Also from Solo, a Star Wars story, it is L337. So I talked just a few minutes ago about how of everyone on this list, Emphis Nest is the character that I want to know more about. L337, however, is my favorite character in Solo, a Star Wars story. She's just an absolute delight. I think she's both in terms of like, you know, personality and her mannerisms and everything that Phoebe Waller-Bridge brings to the character. But even just beyond that, I think what she symbolizes and her kind of deeper thematic importance is also something that very much draws me to her. So, you know, it would be easy to write off L3 as just another sassy droid brought in for comic relief, a la a K2SO. But I think that would be a mistake, because I think there are some really interesting ideas and concepts and things that L3 as a character forces us to confront and think about in a way that no other droid character really up to this point, at least in canon Star Wars, has done. I know that, you know, after Solo came out, this was very much a kind of point of division and contention among some fans, where some people liked it and some people really didn't like it and were kind of turned off by it. I personally like the droid rights angle. 
I think that's really, really interesting. I think it's great that we have a character, particularly a droid character, through which we get to explore that concept. Because I do think that it raises some really important questions that are worth considering about what exactly the moral status of droids is in the Star Wars universe. Because I think it's rather ambiguous. And I think it's ambiguous on both sides, both in terms of our good guys and our bad guys. You know, if we look at the quote-unquote bad guys of the Star Wars universe, it's pretty clear how they view droids in most cases, which is to say that they view them as expendable, as essentially just pure instruments that can be disposed of and have no real value in and of themselves. We see that particularly in the context of the battle droids and the prequels. I'm thinking particularly of that scene in the Clone Wars. I think it's in season one of the Clone Wars where Grievous and Count Dooku are on the bridge of one of the ships. Maybe it's the Malevolence, maybe it's another separatist ship. And Grievous is like knocking over some battle droids and Dooku's kind of chiding about like, careful, Grievous, you know, these are really expensive. You can't just go, you know, destroying them wantonly at will. So you definitely see that attitude of droids by the bad guys as just being these tools, these instruments, just property that can be, you know, thrown away, discarded or destroyed whenever they please, that they have no real value or importance in and of themselves. So that's pretty clear in terms of that, in terms of our villains in Star Wars. Now, by contrast, when we look at the good guys of Star Wars, generally speaking there, we see that there is much more value and importance given to droids. You know, I think about that scene in The Phantom Menace after R2-D2, you know, allows the Queen's ship to escape the Trade Federation blockade. And then there's that whole scene in her audience room where they're all standing around and they're commending R2-D2. And then, you know, fake Queen Amidala is sort of telling Padme to clean him up. He deserves our gratitude. So there's definitely scenes like that. There's stuff like Ray rescuing BB-8 from Tito and helping, you know, fix his antenna and all that. There's like so many scenes, um, or even at the end of A New Hope when R2 is destroyed and they go through the effort of, you know, fixing and rebuilding him because unlike the bad guys, they don't necessarily see droids as just expendable. They recognize them as having characters and personality and being like organic beings like living people. And so they do go out of their way in various contexts to respect and acknowledge that. Even so, though, I think there are still, even among our organic good guys, if you will, I think there's still questions about, like, even in those contexts, even though we can point to all of these examples of how our heroes are treating droids properly and the way that we would want them to be treated, we can still ask questions about, are the droids in those contexts, are they free? You know, is an R2, is a 3PO, is a BB-8, is a DO, are they truly free? Are they, do they have the ability to make whatever decisions that they want for themselves if they wanted to leave and just, you know, abandon the rebellion or whatever, or the resistance? Like, do they have the option to do that? Or are they still in certain ways instruments? So it is clear that, you know, that... 
our various heroes do think of our droids as important and care for them and so on. But are they caring for them in a way that, like, let's say any of us would care about a laptop, which is to say, well, well, here is this device, and this device is very important to me, and I want to make sure that it doesn't get damaged or broken or scratched up or anything. Now, that's definitely—now, there's very clear examples, I think, of heroes in Star Wars, particularly some of our kind of main characters, who do really see it. The droids is more than just like, let's say, the equivalent of a laptop. They really do treat them almost as like persons. But then if you think about, you know, our good guys more generally, if you take the, you know, the random X-Wing pilot who was an astromech droid or, you know, what have you, I think there's still some questions to be asked about just how much agency, just how much freedom do the droids have even in those contexts and whether droids, even in the context of our heroes, are still being assigned this utilitarian value, right? Like, what can they do? And so I think having a character like L3 there and the way that she is kind of asserting herself against Lando and really pushing freedom and autonomy for droids allows us to explore and ask those questions about what are the status of droids throughout the Star Wars universe, not just among our bad guys, but also potentially among our good guys. And then just I sort of alluded to this at the top when I first started talking about L3. There are just some great moments with her. There's some great kind of personality bits there with her. You know, her conversation with Kira in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon when they're talking about um, how Han has feelings for Kira. And then she starts talking about her and Lando. And she says, like, oh, you know, like he's got, you know, he's got feelings for me, but it would never work out and all that. And, you know, that, of course, the, the famous line about like, it works. Probably the most risque Star Wars has ever gone. Like, I don't think Star Wars has ever gotten like that close to like towing the line into like really talking explicitly about, you know, things around sex. Yeah, I think it just really is a kind of standout moment in that way. Probably my favorite scene in the entire movie, Solo, I would say, the one that I just really have the most fun in, is that scene on Kessel when she's liberating the droids and the spice mines and, like, they're all causing anarchy and she's removing the restraining bolts and, you know, telling Lando that she's found her purpose. I think it's it's so much fun. It's such a great scene. It's a really standout moment in that movie. And then, of course, as we know, during that escape on Kessel, she is ultimately destroyed and um, her consciousness gets uploaded into the Falcon, or at least her, like, her maps get uploaded into it. It's a little ambiguous, exactly, which, you know, a lot of people pointed this out about, like, is there a certain conflict or tension there with her droid's rights views? Because she's, you know, she's all about freedom and autonomy for droids, but now she's, you know, she's having her, you know, her brain essentially extracted and uploaded into the ship really without her consent, without her say so. So is there a certain tension there? Potentially, you know, you can make the case that there is. I really would have liked her to have a bigger part in Solo. I would have liked for her to stick around longer, at least maybe to the third act, even if she doesn't survive to the end of the movie. I think it would have still been fun to have her around for, say, the castle run. You know, apart from just them using her brain essentially to navigate through, like it would be great to actually have her there as an active participant. And then, you know, beyond Solo, you know, the other thing I really have to shout out in the context of L3 is is the story from, from a certain point of view, Empire Strikes Back, Faith and an Old Friend, which um, is basically 
set in the Millennium Falcon when it's on Cloud City and basically is from the perspective of what gets called the Millennium Collective, which is, I think, a collection of, I think, three different, like, droid brains that are inside the Millennium Falcon that help run it. And one of those is L3. And basically, like, they're talking amongst themselves and they're trying to communicate with the kind of, with the outside world to get a message out about, you know, what's going on. And that story, I did not expect to get the like feels that I got from that story because you you get to see really like L3 it's like she's back with Lando kind of in the presence of Lando for the first time since you know Han won the Falcon and Solo and you really get to see her her pain and her yearning to be kind of reunited with him and yeah so like that's a that's a really emotional story it's a really really well well written one so if you have not read from a certain point of view the empire strikes back definitely at a minimum find and read that story it's really really good and yeah, I'm personally, I'm, I'm a fan of that retcon, you know, that line from C-3PO and Empire, like, I don't know where your ship plan to communicate, but as the most peculiar dialect, I just, I like those little, like, connective things where you're pulling stuff in where, like, of course, nobody in 1980 had in mind L337, but now that you have this other story, again, it's that element of Star Wars of iterative storytelling, where, like, the stories kind of build on prior stories and inform them. I like that kind of retcon. That, oh, yeah, he's talking about L3 there, and maybe she's, like... <laughs> you know, C-3PO is trying to communicate with the ship and she's just telling him, like, you know, piss off. Like, I, I love that thought. So, yeah, L3, a great character, a great droid, I think, from a kind of thematic and ideas perspective, I think introduces a lot um, for us to chew on. All right, now we've got ourselves a run of Rogue One here, right in the middle of the list, starting with number six. It's Jin Erso, the movie's heroine. So I really like Jin Erso, and not just Jin Erso, but also her entire family, I think, is incredibly fascinating. I think each one of them brings some really interesting things to the table. So, you know, for those of you who have not read the novel Catalyst, which really is a kind of prequel to Rogue One, I would strongly encourage you to go read Catalyst. That book goes into a lot about particularly the character of Lyra Urso, who we don't get a lot of in the movie. She's killed in those opening minutes, and frankly, that is a travesty because Lyra Urso is a really, really compelling character as that book details, because Catalyst goes into a lot about her spiritualism regarding the Force, and you get a little bit of that. It's kind of Tease that hinted at in the movie itself, but Callus itself goes into, into a lot more detail about her beliefs in the Force and also her antagonistic relationship to Krennic. You know, we have that line that in Rogue One is kind of a throwaway line about, oh, Lyra, troublesome as ever. But if you read the book, if you read Catalyst, you get to see all of the history behind that and how she's constantly been this figure who has upset and frustrated Krennic's plans as regards Galen. And then, of course, Galen himself is, in and of himself, a very, really interesting character, because one of the things that you find out in Catalyst is how he's basically tricked, duped into working on the Death Star project without him really realizing that that is what his work and his research is going into. 
I'm going to save more on the character of Galen Erso and particularly about his story in Catalyst for another episode. I have plans. I want to talk more about the Death Star and about Galen Erso and his sort of place in the history of that particular project, but I just wanted to bring him up there. When we look at the figure of Jin, though, I think Jin is really interesting. Again, if we kind of step back from the plot of the movie itself and talk about, you know, how does Jin fit in with the larger story of Star Wars and how does her experiences kind of inform our understanding of the larger canon and the larger figures and events and organizations in the Star Wars story? I think one of the things that makes Jin really important and she's by no means the only character that does this, we will talk about another one in a few minutes, is that Jin gives us a more nuanced look at the Rebel Alliance. You know, as we find out in the movie and is sort of detailed a little bit more, particularly in Rebel Rising in her book, which is also a kind of Rogue One prequel, she sort of fought in the kind of she was in the kind of periphery of the rebellion as part of Saw Gerrera's crew, but then is sort of subsequently abandoned once, you know, as, as Saw kind of talks about in the movie, how there were starting to be whispers about who Jinnerso really was and her connection to Galen and such. And so once that threat was kind of out there looming, he kind of had to cut her loose and let her go. However, despite the fact that Jin is this sort of rebel fighter for at least part of her life, at least the early part of her life, what's interesting is that compared to a lot of the other rebel figures that we've met, you know, in, in the course of other Star Wars material, whether you're talking about Alu Khan and Leia, or even if you're talking about, let's say, the ghost crew and rebels, Jin doesn't really find any sense of hope or belonging in the rebellion, at least initially. You know, by the time that we find her at the start of Rogue One, that's obviously going to change over the course of the movie. But for her, the rebellion isn't this source of inspiration. Really, it's a source of loss for her. You know, there's that exchange that she and Saw have on Jeddah where Saw asks her, you care not about the cause? And then Jin replies, the cause? Seriously? The Alliance? The Rebels? Whatever it is you're calling yourself these days? All it's ever brought me is pain. So that's a really interesting perspective there. And it connects also a little bit with Cassian's story to the extent that we get it in Rogue One, where we get to see him do some dark deeds, like at the beginning of the movie when he shoots the informant, or even later on towards the end of the movie before the third act, when he kind of talks about how he and the other rebel fighters have done all of these terrible things in the name of the rebellion. You're getting these hints about this other side of the rebel alliance, that it's not this clean-cut, black-and-white, good guys and bad guys stories, but that there are people on the side of the Alliance who are fighting there who have a little bit more checkered relationship to the Rebellion. And there's, again, teasing at this point, but I think it's pretty obvious who I'm talking about. There is another character who is coming up on this list who very much also fits that bill. So I think Jin is sort of interesting in that way in terms of how she deepens and complicates our understanding of the Rebel Alliance. When we look at her journey in Rogue One, when she kind of joins back up with the rebels at the beginning of the movie after she gets rescued from the Wobani prison camp, what we see there is that she joins back up initially for selfish reasons. So she gets picked up and 
the rebel leaders kind of promise that if she assists them in finding Galen, then they'll basically wipe her record clean and allow her to escape. She becomes more invested in finding her father once she sees that message and kind of finds out the truth about what he's been doing. And now she really wants to find him, which I think is really true to the Star Wars hero's journey. I think you see this time and again. This is a kind of motif throughout almost all the eras of Star Wars when you look at some of our main heroes, which is that a lot of them become involved when they start out. They're not necessarily committed to the cause, quote-unquote, but really they have a sort of selfish motivation that sort of leads them to stumble into the cause. So if you look at Luke, for example, in A New Hope, he really just wants to get off Tatooine and, you know, he wants to become a Jedi Knight, but that's really sort of connected to his relationship to his father and the sort of idealized notion that he has about who his father was. You know, I think about Han and he has that line, after they rescue Leia, where he says, you know, I ain't in this for your revolution, kid. I expect to get well paid. I'm in it for the money. Han doesn't really care about the cons at the beginning. If you look at Finn, for example, in the sequel trilogy, particularly in The Force Awakens, he's really just looking to run away from the First Order. He's not super committed to the cause, and that kind of continues into The Last Jedi. And that's also true with Jin. So on the one hand, as I just talked about, she gets involved with the Rebels really just to kind of clear her name and also to find her dad. And then also... Again, to go back to that conversation with Saw that I just referenced, there also you can see how she's not really concerned about the larger galaxy and about the larger cause. They have that exchange where Saw says, you can stand to see the Imperial flags flying over the galaxy. And Jin replies, it's not a problem if you don't look up. That line is really her version of I ain't in this for your revolution, kid. So she kind of... Just like all of those other characters that I talked about, like a Luke, like a Han, like a Finn, she has to come around to caring about the larger cause, which she ultimately does by the time we get to the third act of the movie. You know, there are two great speeches that she gives that kind of encapsulate her journey and how she kind of embraces the rebel moniker and the alliance and such. So first there is the speech to the rebel council that she gives, basically once they all find out about the Death Star and a lot of them are feeling discouraged and they want to break up the rebellion because they don't see any way of winning against the Empire. You know, she says, what chance do we have? The question is, what choice? Run, hide, plead for mercy, scatter your forces. You give way to an enemy this evil with this much power, and you condemn the galaxy to an eternity of submission. The time to fight is now. So you can see just how much she's grown from it's not a problem if you don't look up to her saying, what chance do we have? What choice? The time to fight is now. So how she's really embraced fighting for the cause of the rebellion and for the galaxy. But actually, for me, the most powerful, the most impactful moment regarding Jin is actually not so much the speech of the Rebel Council, although that is very powerful and very important. It's actually what she says to Rogue One when they're on Scarif and they're about to go out to do their mission. And she tells them, Saw Gerrera used to say, one fighter with a sharp stick and nothing left to lose can take the day. They've no idea we're coming. They've no reason to expect us. If we can make it to the ground, We'll take the next chance and the next on and on until we win or the chances are spent. 
I love that scene. I love that moment. On the one hand, you get to see her commitment to this and her determination where she talks about how we're just going to keep taking the chances. And if we're beaten back, we're going to try again and again and again until we can't anymore. But also in contrast to that speech that she gives to the rebel council, which is kind of big and boisterous and rallying, this one is kind of smaller and intimate. And yeah, it's one that I absolutely love and kind of hits in a certain place and hits in a certain way. So again, kind of shows the way that she's changed and transformed and she's sort of become this rebel leader, at least this leader of this kind of small squad going on to Scarif. And then, of course, as we know, by the end of the movie, she ultimately gives up her life to transmit the Death Star plans to the Rebel Alliance. So again, that huge arc and evolution that Jin takes over the course of the movie, I think is just really, really well done and really, really fascinating to watch and to see. All right, so that's Jin. Now we're going to move on to number five. Also from Rogue One, I have already been teasing him uh, when I was talking about Jin. So now we're going to talk about Saw Gerrera. Really, truly, Saw needs his own episode, and he may very well get one in the future. Saw Gerrera is a really, really fascinating and compelling character. You know, we first meet him in the Clone Wars. We get to see him in the Onderon arc in Season 5 when he's training with Anakin and Ahsoka and Rex. And they're basically, you know, trying out this experiment, essentially, where rather than, you know, sending in the clone army into a particular planet or a battlefield, they're going to try to train up locals to have them fight for themselves and kind of overthrow the separatists themselves so we get to see there a young saw alongside his sister stila them fighting with anakin and ahsoka and rex and training and all that and of course as we know in that arc his sister stila who's really the kind of leader of their group of freedom fighters is killed by the separatists and that loss really scars him for the rest of his life and really informs the kind of fighter he becomes and why he sort of takes on the particular tactics that he does. Saw, what really fascinates me about Saw is actually a couple of things. But first and foremost, is he's a great case study in the trauma of war. And in that sense, he kind of reinforces Star Wars' anti-war message. We get to see in his character really spell out the way in which constantly being in the state of fighting and losing those closest to you, losing your sister, the way that that can shape people, the way that that can warp people and their thinking and the logic and their morals, I think Saw is a really fascinating and in some ways a kind of cautionary tale about what war can do to people. And also, again, much like Jin Urso, but in somewhat different ways, Saw is this lens for, again, getting a kind of more nuanced view of the Rebel Alliance, looking at other sides of it. And particularly, he's interesting for exploring the divides within the early rebellion, which frankly, up until up until we get to the Rogue One period, until we get to Rebels, we didn't know much about. 
Because when we look at the original trilogy, when we watch those movies, the OT really presents the Rebel Alliance as a united front. We just get to see it as this one big thing, and they're all fighting for the same cause, and they're united, and they have the same goals and objectives. But now when we look at new canon, and we bring in stuff like... Rogue One, we bring in stuff like Rebels, and no doubt when we get the Cassian Andor show, we get to see all of these divides over tactics and strategies and objectives that, again, enrich in our understanding of what the Rebel Alliance was like and really allow us to see that that consensus that we kind of get in the original trilogy, that wasn't there from the jump. That was something that really had to be forged. But that there were, in fact, in the early years, there were multiple potential routes that the Rebellion could have gone. And that nothing about what happens in the context of the original trilogy really was inevitable. Um, and I think we particularly see that, again, if we talk about the, the figure of Sagarera. There's the Great Rebels episode in the name of the Rebellion back in Season 4 where we get to see on display the different philosophies of Sagarera and Mon Mothma. On the one hand... Saw is someone who is willing to do whatever it takes to defeat the Empire. That's very much his ethos. Even if it means, for example, engaging in morally gray tactics, like, for instance, targeting civilians. Mon Mothma, on the other hand, won't go that far. She takes a much more kind of principled, rule-based stand about trying to differentiate the Rebel Alliance from the Empire. So when you know Saw's big hologram shows up on Yavin 4, you know, she's kind of attacks him and she says, You target civilians, kill those who surrender, break every rule of engagement. If we degrade ourselves to the Empire's level, what will we become? So she has a very kind of rule-based ethics. There are certain things that we cannot do, we should not do, because if we do them, then morally we're no better than the Empire. Saw, however, has a very different perspective. So in that exchange, he replies to her, I hope, Senator, after you've lost and the Empire reigns of the galaxy unopposed, you will find some comfort in the knowledge that you fought according to the rules. So if we want to think about this in a kind of moral standpoint, Mon Mothma has a very kind of rules-based ethical system. Um, if we want to, again, you know, throw around some moral philosophy terms, she's kind of a deontological ethicist. So that just that basically just means that, like, she has a moral system that is defined by, like, adherence to a certain set of rules or principles. Whereas Saw, on the other hand, is much more utilitarian. We talked about utilitarianism in an earlier episode, back in the WandaVision episode, where for Saw Guerrero, it's really about the results. It's about beating the Empire. And whatever works in terms of defeating the Empire is fine, so long as it gets that result. It kind of ends justify the means philosophy. You know, we see that on display in other points in Rebels. So, for example, if we go back to the Geonosis arc in Season 3, we see that Saw is willing to hold hostage click-clack and basically the last Geonosian egg in order to find out what the Empire was building on Geonosis, when if we go back to season four in that same arc that in the name of the rebellion is a part of, when 
he and Ezra and Sabine are on the Imperial ship that's allegedly going to where the Death Star is going to go, where the big kyber crystal is, they end up finding the captured civilians, like the engineers and the scientists and so on. And he has really very little interest in rescuing them because he's really kind of focused on finding the kyber crystal and figuring out where the ship is going. He doesn't want it to divert from its present course. So... I mean, all of that stuff that what we see in Saw and Rebels kind of clicks into a major theme of Rebels, which is this question about how we choose to fight, that being as important as, you know, who you're fighting and what your ultimate goal is, you know, what tactics, what are you willing to do and not do? That's obviously a big part of the show. But I also think that, like, Saw's approach, I think is not so easy to dismiss out of hand. I think he does very much challenge our, let's say, moral instincts about, you know, what is right and what isn't right in the context of warfare. I go back to that line that I quoted a few minutes ago where he says to Mon Mothma, I hope after you've lost and the Empire reigns unopposed, you will find some comfort in the knowledge that you fought according to the rules. Where he does raise this question where it's like, okay, it's well and good to kind of follow these rules of engagement. And you say, well, there are certain lines we don't cross. But if doing so means that the bad guys win and you lose, like, is that a worthwhile trade-off? Then it's not necessarily saying that Saw is necessarily right, but he does kind of force us to grapple with those questions. That, like, you know, what is worth doing or not doing? How are we making decisions about what actions are morally acceptable and which ones are kind of morally beyond the pale. I think he does force us to reckon with those. And I think he's a, he and his approach are ones that we can't necessarily just immediately dismiss out of hand. I do think we have to grapple and engage with them and think about them. And then, you know, when we ultimately get to, when we see him in live action, Rogue One, that figure it was really interesting. I think it was on Clashing Sabers. I think they did an episode on Rogue One. And I can't remember who was talking about it. I think it was maybe Brandon. He was talking about how the movie kind of sets Saw it there up as a kind of parallel to Vader. You know, we clearly see when we first meet him there, he's got cybernetics. He's lost a leg. He has the, like, the breathing device that he has to breathe into. And then like one of the things I think Brandon mentioned on that episode is about how Borgullet the creature that he uses to interrogate uh, Bodhi Rook is his kind of version of the interrogator droid that Vader uses on Princess Leia. So the movies, they're trying to give us a kind of moral parallel between these two figures, between Saw and Vader, as these people who have, on the one hand, you could say maybe been broken by the experience of war, both in a kind of literal sense in their bodies that they're that they've been damaged and then also maybe kind of spiritual level but then also drawing kind of parallel about these two figures who are willing to go to these extreme lengths to get what they want to complete their objectives so yeah i think saw is there's a lot going on with saw again saw saw really needs his own episode and where we can like really really dig into his tactics and his approach and to some of the kind of real world parallels that sort of inform the saw that we get in star Wars. But yeah, I just wanted to kind of talk about him a little bit there. And in the future, I think I will almost certainly come back to him some more. 
But for now, we are going to go to number four. The last one for the Rogue One run, and that is director Orson Krennic. Krennic is a really interesting villain. I really like Krennic as the kind of main antagonist of Rogue One, and even where he appears elsewhere. In the same way that Jin and Saw offer us these lenses into the Rebellion and allow us to kind of see some of the struggles and complexities and nuances within the Rebel Alliance, I think Krennic does something similar for the Empire. He lets us see into the Empire. He gives us this lens to see in particular the power politics that are going on at the top among the people sort of in charge who are all vying and jockeying amongst themselves for power and control and influence. Granted, we get this in other places also in canon. I think particularly with the first canon Thrawn novel, a lot of that book, particularly the Arinda Price plotline in there is all about imperial high politics and these different moths who are all trying to like off each other and climb over each other and all that. But I think we also get that in the context of Krennic and Tarkin and their back and forth in Rogue One and how they're jockeying for control over the Death Star project. And if we think about that contrast between Krennic and Tarkin, when we kind of put them side by side, Tarkin is very much the kind of consummate bureaucrat. Like he's the kind of, he's the person who sort of understands the political machinations and he knows how to maneuver himself in these ways that he can kind of accumulate maximum political power. Krennic is very much a scientist. I think mean, he's that first and foremost. He's a scientist who then, by virtue of the work that he does, finds himself in this power politics and having to jockey with guys like Tarkin for control. And I think it's some of that experience and background, which is why ultimately Tarkin is able to come out on top, because this is very much Tarkin's game, versus this is something that Krennic kind of has to learn by virtue of what he does. And again, you know, I talked about this book in the context of the Ursos for Galen and Lyra, but this is also true for Krennic. Catalyst provides us a great backstory into his connection with the Death Star Project going all the way back to its early years back in the Clone Wars. And again, I've got a future episode where I'm going to be talking more about the Death Star where I will kind of get more into some of the nitty-gritty of Catalyst and what we learned about him and about his relationship to Galen Erso. But yeah, once again, just to reiterate, read that book if you haven't. It adds a lot to the experience of watching Rogue One and interacting with those characters. This may be a little controversial. I know there's some people who have different opinions about this, but I personally like his shuttle I know there are some people who have said that like it clashes a little bit with the more Spartan utilitarian aesthetic of the rest of the empire, but I think it stands, and I think it certainly does that. I think it does stand apart, but it does so. I think in a way that is to its credit rather than to its detriment. I think it's got a very kind of classic sci-fi look to it with like the sleek black and the big angles. Like it feels something like you might see in like a Kubrick film or something like that. It's it's sci-fi, but it is a different kind of sci-fi aesthetic from what we get from the rest of Star Wars, but I still think it fits within the universe of Star Wars. So, you know, apart from Krennic himself, I am also a fan of the kind of accoutrement around him, both his ship and then, of course, 
his death troopers that are kind of flanking him wherever he goes. I think that also is, I think, a big big part of his character in a way that he kind of projects his importance and his power and his influence. And, of course, as we see over the course of the movie Rogue One, personality-wise, he's very much a short fuse. He's easily frustrated and he gets impatient. And, you know, compared to, let's say, Tarkin, who's very much a kind of smooth operator, who very much kind of stays level at all times, Krennic is much more of a blunt instrument. And I think that's part of the reason why he ultimately loses out to Tarkin, to go back to the point that I made a few minutes ago about how Tarkin understands how to navigate this fraught world of imperial politics. Krennic doesn't really know how to do that, and he finds himself, when he's obstructed in the things that he wants, he's much more prone to just lashing out and getting angry and not being able to keep his cool, versus somebody like Tarkin who kind of maintains that kind of constant placid demeanor and attitude. And, of course, ultimately, at the end of the movie, we see that he gets killed by... The Death Star itself, once Tarkin orders it to fire on the Imperial facility on Scarif to prevent the transmission of the Death Star plans. And I think Krennic's end ultimately there is quite poetic and quite fitting for him, right? To be destroyed by this thing to which he has committed himself for decades by that point, this weapon that he helped build. And I think it really reinforces something that is true across Star Wars, across the movies and other material that also kind of reinforces his message, which is that at the end of the day, ultimately, everyone in the Empire is expendable. There is nobody who is essential, who can't be gotten rid of. Anyone and everyone can be sacrificed in service of the machine, in, in service of the Empire's accumulation of power. And I think that is ultimately the moral of Orson Krennic. So, yeah, there's a Rogue One run there. It, honestly, I'll, I'll be honest with you all. It was a struggle to not make this entire list a Rogue One list because there are a lot of great one-and-done characters in that movie. But, um, yeah, I wanted to shout out those three in particular. So now we're moving on to the top three one-and-done characters. My favorite ones, the ones that I see as most significant and most important to the Star Wars story. Let's begin with number three. From the Phantom Menace, it is Qui-Gon Jinn. And I'm going to head it off right now because I'm sure someone listening to this, as soon as I drop that name, had the impulse to, you know, well, actually me, I'm counting him. I know his voice is in Attack of the Clones. I know he's in Rise of Skywalker. I don't care. He's a one undone character. I mean, I, I sort of went back and forth on this, in fairness, about whether or not he really belongs on this list. I ultimately decided on it because even though, as I said, you know, we hear him briefly in Attack of the Clones and then he shows up as one of the Jedi voices in The Rise of Skywalker, ultimately I thought that that wasn't enough to justify saying that, like, he's in those movies in a kind of proper sense. If he had shown up, let's say, Obi-Wan style as a kind of corporeal force ghost 
in any of those contexts and, you know, had conversations with the characters, then I might say, okay, he's not really a one-and-done character. The fact that he's just a background voice, though, I think puts him in a one-and-done character. Because then because then I start thinking, like, well, like, can I count Kanan Jarrus as a one-and-done character? Because he's technically in The Rise of Skywalker. His voice is there. So ultimately, I said, Qui-Gon counts. For my purposes, I think he is a one-and-done character. And also, I want to talk about Qui-Gon Jinn. So there you go. If all we had of Qui-Gon Jinn was just the Phantom Menace, if all we knew about that character was what we see in Liam Neeson's performance in that movie, and we had nothing else, he would be fascinating enough. I think that in and of itself would warrant him being on this list. Fortunately, though, we don't just have that. And we have a slew of other canon material that adds even more to his character. Of course, the thing that everybody knows about Qui-Gon Jinn, the reason he kind of stands out, not just in The Phantom Menace, but in the larger context of all of Star Wars, is that he is very much a renegade Jedi. What we see, particularly in The Phantom Menace, but also elsewhere, is that he has little interest in the institutional Jedi Order. His priority instead is communing with the living force. He doesn't really think that it is important to the Jedi way of life, the Jedi philosophy, to follow the strict code and to be involved in this sort of political institution that the Jedi has become. He is instead sort of much more focused on the force itself and understanding its will and following the will of the Force, rather than following the dictates of the Jedi Council. We get to see that, for instance, in Master and Apprentice, where he's willing to blow up the treaty with Pajal over the issue of Cherka and slavery on the planet, and there's that whole great conversation, the back and forth with Yoda, where he's basically saying, I'm like, I'm not going to go along with this treaty, I'm not going to give it the okay, and Yoda is very much taking the political position where he's like, well, we need this hyperspace route, and that's really important, so you got to go along with this, even though slavery is going on, and that's bad. So you get to see there how Qui-Gon really isn't interested in the politics of the Jedi Order and the Senate and any of that. He's really just looking at what's right and what's wrong and sort of following his own intuitions on that. And then, of course, in The Phantom Menace, we see that after the Council refuses to train Anakin, saying that he's too old, he insists that he will take on Anakin against the wishes of the Council. So... Again, we're seeing his sort of antagonistic relationship with the rules and the hierarchy of the Jedi Order at the time. You know, from his perspective, if you take the case of Anakin, he's saying like, well, I think from what I see, he is the chosen one. He will bring balance to the Force. The Council doesn't believe that, but I don't care. I think I'm right. I am trusting the will of the Force as I understand it, and I'm going to follow that rather than the dictates of this political body. And... You know, apart from that and really connected to that, another important feature of Qui-Gon is that he maintains a compassion that the Jedi, over the course of their institutionalization and their politicization, have really lost. And this is something that Dave Filoni talks about in the season one behind the scenes of The Mandalorian when he goes on his like extended analysis of the Duel of Fates, where he talks about the way that he describes it is that Qui-Gon hasn't given up on the idea that Jedi are supposed to care. And you see that in a bunch of places in The Phantom Menace. You see that 
in the way that he treats Jar Jar Binks, for example, and seeing him as a creature that has importance and value, whereas, let's say, Obi-Wan kind of dismisses him. You know, there's that line when they're about to leave Tatooine, when he says, why do I feel like we've picked up another pathetic life form, where Obi-Wan sees both Jar Jar and Anakin as just essentially luggage, as a kind of burden. Qui-Gon sees value and importance in them. We see that in the context of Shmi, for example, where he's very sort of compassionate and caring towards her. He tries to get her freed along with Anakin, but of course he is not able to do that. And then, you know, when Anakin ultimately makes the decision to go go with him, there's that brief moment that he and Shmi share where he asks her, like, are you going to be all right? So you see that compassion coming through. And that's also there in, if you read Master and Apprentice, like, that's very much there in his concern about slavery on Pajal with the characters Pax and Rahara in that book. It's all there. And I think both of those features of Qui-Gon, both his compassion on the one hand and then his willingness to buck the Jedi hierarchy and the order and his willingness to kind of listen in the Force, that is very much reflected in the character of Ahsoka Tano. This is like every so often on Twitter, there will be like a post about like two Star Wars characters you wish had met. And for me, it is always the wish is always Qui-Gon and Ahsoka. Like I really, really wish those two had been able to meet because I think they really would have jived with one another. I think Ahsoka and her personality is very similar to Qui-Gon, particularly after she leaves the order, how she's just willing to follow the force, how she understands it and kind of buck what the Jedi institutional order thinks and wants and then also very clearly in her compassion that she shows to a host of different characters again i talked about this a lot more on my ahsoka episode episode 20 so go listen to that if you want to hear both me and um and my guest kind of go off on that and i think we even get like you know one of my favorite qui-gon ahsoka parallels is there is, you know, in Phantom Menace, as we know, during the Duel of Fates, when there's the ray shields, they get cut off and, you know, Maul and Qui-Gon are separated. Qui-Gon kind of goes into this meditative pose where he's just sort of centering himself and listening to the Force. And then when we go to Rebels, when Ahsoka is fighting the Seventh Sister, there's that moment, it's much briefer, where she kind of turns off her lightsabers and then almost goes into this like brief trance or kind of assumes this meditative pose before then going back and resuming the fight. And whenever I see that, I just immediately think of that moment in The Phantom Menace of Qui-Gon meditating. The way that both of them channel the Force and use it to kind of center themselves, I think is really, really interesting and a compelling parallel. And again, I just I wish those two had been able to meet. I think that would have been just amazing to get to see. And, you know, the last big point to make about Qui-Gon Jinn is that apart from all of these other things about his personality, Qui-Gon Jinn occupies a really monumental place in Jedi history. He's really this kind of central figure. When we step out and look at the larger Star Wars canon, not just the Skywalker saga, but then even beyond that and the other material, Qui-Gon is this really, really seminal figure. First off, of course, he's the first Jedi in centuries, millennia, it's not really clear, to become one with the Force. And of course, that becomes really important in terms of ensuring that Yoda and Obi-Wan and other Jedi are able to also become one with the Force and sort of maintain a 
existence beyond death and to be able to, you know, commune with the living through the force. And also he he's in this kind of really important kind of fulcrum turning point in galactic history. You know, I've been and I've been thinking about this a lot since the start of the High Republic and reading a lot of the High Republic books. And you know, one of the things that I've seen as I've been going through the books is like I've started to think a lot more about the Phantom Menace. And I've been particularly thinking about like two moments in the Phantom Menace that I feel like now, as we are starting to go back into the pre-Skywalker saga period and seeing, you know, what was going on, particularly with the Jedi hundreds of years before the events of the Phantom Menace, all of that is starting to add layers to what we see in the start of the Skywalker saga. So I think, for instance, about that duel with Maul, the first duel with Maul in Tatooine. Of course, you know, that's the first time that anyone had seen a Sith or, you know, fought against a Sith in a millennia. But even just beyond that, one of the things that I've taken away from the High Republic that that's really underscores that, like, beyond just, like, fighting the Sith, which was, you know, unheard of, even the notion of, like, Jedi fighting other lightsaber wielders was just a kind of foreign notion. I think this is in... It's in Into the Dark, I believe. I think it might even be... Someplace else. It might be in Dooku Jedi Lost. There may even be a line about it in Master and Apprentice. There's like a few places where the Jedi sort of talk about lightsab- their lightsabers and lightsaber training almost as this kind of formality. It's like, yeah, you learn the techniques. You learn how to fight somebody. You know, you, you learn how to engage in lightsaber combat. But there's no expectation you're ever actually going to do it. It's just this part of the path to becoming a Jedi Knight. No one is actually, like, thinking they're actually going to fight against somebody else who has a lightsaber, particularly another force wielder with a lightsaber. So when Maul shows up in that scene in Tatooine and Qui-Gon just immediately has to go into the mode of fighting, like, that's a really monumental moment in galactic history that, like, Qui-Gon is doing what probably a lot of his peers and his contemporaries, a lot of the people in the Jedi Council that probably never fought anyone with a lightsaber... Like, that is pretty wild. And then I even think about what happens immediately afterwards. And of course, this none of this was meant at the time that the movie came out in 99. But, you know, again, with that Star Wars and iterative storytelling, there's layers to it. When Qui-Gon gets back on the Queen's ship, and Obi-Wan's asking, like, what was it? Like, asking about who this person was. And he replies, like, I don't know, but it was well-trained in the Jedi arts. Like, you can see in that line, like, Qui-Gon in that moment his brain hasn't caught up to what he's just seen and experienced. So he has this fight with Mom, and then immediately aftermath, Obi-Wan asks him who that was, and he's like, well, it's like a Jedi, but it's not a Jedi. So he's still only understanding it through the lens of a Jedi, and it takes him a while until he gets to the Council, until he has that fateful meeting at the Jedi Council, where he's like, Okay, this was somebody who was trained in the Jedi arts, but they're not a Jedi, so they got to be a Sith. So he kind of goes on this mental journey where he has to get to the point of realizing, oh my god, this is actually a Sith Lord. Because again, nobody had seen this. There was nobody who'd had the experience of having to fight for their lives against somebody else with a lightsaber. So... And that's the second scene of the Phantom Menace that I was referring to about, like, th- that I've been thinking about a lot and has gotten a lot more layers since the Higher Republic is coming out, which is that, that council scene where Qui-Gon both brings up Maul being a Sith Lord and then also bringing about Anakin and the Chosen One. 
So yeah, Qui-Gon is this like central figure in that way. And of course, the other way that he is important to galactic history is that it's his faith that Anakin is the chosen one and then he will bring balance is the thing that sets the events of the entire Skywalker saga into motion. Everything that happens in the prequel trilogy and in the OT and the sequel trilogy emerges because Qui-Gon takes this leap of faith and saying, this boy needs to be trained. He is the chosen one. He will bring balance. So yeah, Qui-Gon is, he's another character that could get his own episode. There is so much going on with Qui-Gon Jinn. So much that I even haven't even touched on here. But yeah, I think he is just a really, really interesting. If we go back to 1999, where the only Jedi we had known were really Obi-Wan, Yoda, and Luke, bringing Qui-Gon in was bringing in a totally new perspective. And I think all these years later, 20 plus years after The Phantom Menace, I think he still remains a really, really compelling character. So yeah, that's Qui-Gon Jinn. So, as I mentioned at the start of this episode, one of the things that I was doing in putting this list together is I wanted this list to be a faithful representation of the characters that, to me, were my favorite. And, you know, this show, and me personally, are nothing if not consistently on brand. All of this, I say, as a way to set up the number two pick. From Revenge of the Sith, it's General Grievous. Again, just as I did with Qui-Gon, I want to emphasize this. This is not an irony pick. General Grievous really is my second favorite one-and-done character in Star Wars. I really love General Grievous. We don't get to spend a lot of time with him on screen, at least not in the live-action context. We get a lot more in Clone Wars. Nevertheless, he's a great villain. I really love Grievous, really for two reasons. There's two reasons why I think he's really, really compelling. First off, you know, I've talked about in a lot of different episodes, in a lot of different contexts, I've talked about the notion of mirror characters. Grievous is a mirror to Anakin. Again, I referenced Clashing Sabers once already on the show, but I'm going to do it again. Because Brandon, on that show, he has a really interesting like three-part model where he talks about how all the three major prequel villains reflect some aspect of Darth Vader. So on the one hand, you've got Maul, who is this living weapon, this kind of blunt force. Then you've got Dooku, who is the fallen Jedi. And then you've got Grievous, who's the cyborg. So I like in that way that he is one of he represents one of these dimensions to the figure of Darth Vader, one of these three components that make up Vader. So I like him in that way, in terms of the way that he functions as this kind of foreshadow to what Anakin will ultimately become. Additionally, maybe more so than any other Star Wars character, I would really venture. Grievous feels most inspired by Star Wars' source material, and by that I mean 1940s and 1950s sci-fi serials, so like your Flash Gordon, your Buck Rogers. To me, he is a kind of quintessential villain that kind of comes out of that vein of, you know, Saturday morning sci-fi low-budget TV. I think everything about him fits the bill. The name, General Grievous, the way that he looks, the cape, the fact that he's a cyborg, all of the stuff that people talk about, like the mustache twirling, like when he literally like he gets into the escape pod of the invisible hand and he's kind of like 
rubbing his hands together and he's laughing and he's like, time to abandon ship. Like all of that, all of that fits into that mid 20th century sci-fi vibe. I think you could, again, more than any other Star Wars character, you could take him out of Star Wars. You could plop him into any of those serials and he would fit without really changing much about him. So I like that aspect that he kind of harkens back in that way to some of Star Wars' and George Lucas's influences in that way. I love the rivalry between him and Obi-Wan. Like, I know Obi-Wan Maul is the, like, is the rivalry between, you know, there with him, but I really love the the Grievous Obi-Wan rivalry. That's That's up there for me. Like, I love their back and forth. The Clone Wars cartoon does a lot to flesh that out. I like, in particular in season one, how they invert the hello there and how, you know, we now know that it's Grievous who is the first one to say it and then Obi-Wan kind of throws it back in his face in Revenge of the Sith. So yeah, I love that rivalry between them and that back and forth. That I think that's really, really fun to get to see. You know, as I mentioned, we don't spend a lot of time with him in Revenge of the Sith, but we do get a lot more in The Clone Wars. And there's a particular couple of standout moments for me from The Clone Wars. So there's the episode Layer of Grievous, where, you know, we get to see where he lives and we get to see him, you know, fighting different Jedi and all of that. I really like that episode. I like the tone and the feel of that episode where they kind of go and it's this dark and mysterious place. And they go into the one room where where there's all the parts of Grievous, like his face shield and the legs and all of that. I think that episode just is a lot of fun. I like him in the Battle of Kamino. I think he's great there too, where we get to see him and Ventress meet, and we get to see some of their banter, their back and forth. And then I think really the highlight of Clone Wars Grievous is the attack on Dathomir when they wipe out the Night Sisters. They're probably, particularly in canon anyway, is I think where we get to see Grievous at his most menacing, where we get to see him just, you know, going all out, just massacring all these Night Sisters. You know, one of the critiques that people have made about Canon Grievous, and I do think, as much as I love him, I think there is some validity to this, is that, like, we don't get to see a ton of him just going all out and being really brutal, and particularly, like, massacring lots of Jedi, because he he has this reputation as this, you know, Jedi Slayer, and he collects all the lightsabers, but we don't get to see a lot of that on screen. I think... That attack on Dathomir does let us see into that side of Grievous, which I do really appreciate because he is supposed to be this fearsome, menacing figure. You know, I did not watch the OG Clone Wars, the Tartakovsky Clone Wars, until this year, until they finally showed up on Disney+. Plus. I already had a copy beforehand, but I just never got around to it. And then when that dropped on Disney+, Plus, I finally decided, okay, I'll watch it. I'd known people, you know, I'd heard people say this beforehand, but now that I've actually seen the Tartakovsky Clone Wars, I can now say it from actual experience having seen it. Tartakovsky Grievous is the best Grievous. Absolutely, hands down, the best. The the Tartakovsky Clone Wars are worth watching for Grievous, if for no other reason. Like, 
I love his entrance at the end of like the first season of it where you've got, um, I think it's Kiari Mundi's apprentice, uh, Shaggy, and he's like running out and then like Grievous just lands on top of him and like pancakes him. I absolutely love that. I love the moments that we get of him like hanging from a ceiling like a bat, like that happens during the battle of Coruscant when he's there to abduct the chancellor. There's that moment where we could just see him kind of drop down. The fact that we never got this in canon anywhere, particularly even in the Clone Wars cartoon, is just a robbery. We've been denied. Like, we should have gotten to see him do that. I absolutely love it. You know, to go back to that Battle of Coruscant in Clone Wars, we get to see him fight and take out multiple Jedi, which again, as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, canon doesn't really show us all that much, so we get a little bit more of that fearsome Grievous in in the Tartakovsky Clone Wars. And just like, literally like, Every time Grievous is on screen in that miniseries, like every time it's a meme, every moment is just absolutely perfect. And honestly, like I don't even totally hate the voice. I mean, like particularly for, I think it's the, like the first season of that, like he has a voice that's kind of different from the Matthew Wood. I think like towards the end of like the battle of Coruscant, it might change and kind of come closer to that. Like I don't even really hate that OG voice for Grievous. But yeah, if you've not watched the Tartakovsky Clone Wars, watch it for Grievous alone. It's incredible. But of course, even beyond that, Grievous in the Clone Wars, Grievous in Revenge of the Sith, I absolutely love him. I think he's a great villain. And yeah, I want more I want more canon storytelling with him. Get get us pre-cyborg Grievous. Let us go back to that. Like I would I would really, really like that. I would like to get to see more of him. So yeah. All right, we've gone all the way through the list. We have talked about the nine, and now we are at last at the one. The number one, one and done character, for me at least, in all of Star Wars. From Attack of the Clones, it is Jango Fett. There is a lot to be said about Jango Fett. I want to step back before I actually talk about the character of Jango Fett in Attack of the Clones and elsewhere. I just want to talk a little bit about like Jango Fett and his place and his inclusion in Star Wars at all. Because I think like I think Jango Fett and like particularly Boba Fett in the now almost at the time of this recording, almost 20 years since Attack of the Clones, like I think he figures really interestingly into some of the discourse that is, you know, going on now about fan service and about the inclusion of kind of returning characters and such. You know, if we think about, for example, the critique that we saw in a lot of corners of Luke in The Mandalorian, and we're also seeing this in other places, you know, at the time that this is recording and coming out, we've got the Bad Batch, and we've seen a number of returning characters there, whether it's Hera, Rex, others, and there's been sort of some pushback on that also along these lines like but the big thing about you know Luke at the end of the Mandalorian in season two was a lot of what was heard in terms of the people who didn't like that was you heard a lot about it being quote unquote fan service. You know, there was a lot of talk about small universe, small galaxy, whatever term you want to use. There was a lot about like, oh, this is Star Wars going back to the familiar and you know what fans know and they like instead of innovating and giving us new characters and all that. The exact same critique can be and has been leveled against the inclusion of the Fets in the prequels. 
there is no reason for Boba's dad to be the template of the clone army. There was no reason to put in Boba Fett or Jango Fett in Attack of the Clones. It literally could have been anybody else. Like, none of the story of the prequels hinges on the template of the clone army being Jango Fett. You could have put Jango Smith in that movie, and everything about the prequels would have happened. So all of those critiques, the, the fan service critiques, small universe, Star Wars going back to the trough, like all of that fits with Jango and with Bo- young Boba being there. And you can make that critique now. People have made that critique in the past. Pe- there are people who you know level that critique now about it, even to today. However, now looking at almost 20 years since the release of Attack of the Clones... Nowadays, though, even though that critique does exist among some people, and of course, if you know, if people feel that way, they're absolutely entitled to feel that way about, you know, about the inclusion of these characters. You don't necessarily have to like it, but for the most part, we just kind of accept that as part of the canon. We just now sort of look at, that, oh yeah, Boba's dad was the kind of genesis of the clone army. We just sort of accepted that now, and I think the same will be true about some of these comparable things. It will be true of Luke and the Mandalorian. It's going to be true of Hera and the Bad Batch. It's going to be true of what other cameos and familiar characters show up, you know, whether you're talking about like Ahsoka and the Mandalorian or anything like that. There will be that initial pushback of, you know, questions about fan service, about is the galaxy too small? Can't we make up new characters? But then as time goes on, a lot of that dust settles and we're just like, yeah, that's just what happened. Luke showed up and rescued Grogu. Uh, the Bad Match saved Hera. Like, we just kind of accept that. I think I think the character of Jango Fett, I think, is an interesting point in that discourse and just seeing like how that evolves over time and how the perspective of time kind of changes how we think and feel about those things. So I just wanted to bring up that element to it. But now to actually talk a little bit about the character himself, and particularly about not just Jango in and of himself, but then also what he does for Boba, I think the inclusion of Jango Fett was important, one, because it was the first step in making Boba more than just a cool background character in the original trilogy. Now he actually had a backstory. We got to see that he had a family. He had a dad. And we get to see everything that sort of happens to him by virtue of the loss of his dad, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. I think you can draw a straight line from Attack of the Clones Boba and the inclusion of Jango Fett through to the Mandalorian and then ultimately to the Book of Boba Fett. Like, none of that stuff, none of those storylines, I don't think we get if we don't get Attack of the Clones Boba Fett. All of that, like, particularly, none of us at this time have seen the Book of Boba Fett, so we don't know what happens there. But if we think about Boba's inclusion in the Mandalorian and the hunt for the armor and all of that, all those layers and dimensions to him, you don't have any of that if you don't have Attack of the Clones Boba and if you don't have Jango Fett there. So... That was really important to making him a richer character. And again, to go back to that point about iterative storytelling, adding in those layers to the original trilogy. I remember all of the excitement leading up to Attack of the Clones about Jango Fett. I think probably, at least for me, and probably this is the case for other people, I think of all of the characters that were being introduced, he was the one that was most immediately compelling. I remember like when the Jango Fett toys came out. And like the three and three quarters, I remember a big thing for me was like, wow, like we actually get to see his face 
because we never got to see Boba's face. He was always just underneath the helmet. But the Django toys, the helmet came off and you got to see the guy underneath. And I remember that just being like, wow, that's so cool. And it's like, here's this guy. He looks like Boba, but he's got this blue and silver armor instead of the green one. And so I remember like that for me was like a big draw about Attack of the Clones. Like here's this guy and he's this connection to Boba Fett. Like I want to know more about him. You know, and then, of course, Tamira Morrison, the figure of Tamira Morrison, has just been such a gift to Star Wars, you know, not just in terms of his portrayal of Django Fett, but then the fact that he ends up becoming the base of the clones, and then the performance that we get to see of D. Bradley Baker in The Clone Wars, and then getting to see him now come back as Boba in Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett, like... That's a big contribution of Jango Fett to Star Wars, just bringing in this great actor, someone who very clearly loves Star Wars and loves his role. So, like, the fact that we get to have Tamira Morrison as part of Star Wars by virtue of that, I love that. I think that's great. You know, I did a whole episode on this early on in the show, so by all means, if you have not listened to it, go check it out. I love the Bounty Hunter video game. That's a really favorite of mine. You know, getting to see that, well, now, of course, it's Legends, but getting to see the Legends backstory of Django and how he sort of became the Temple for the Clone Army and how he got to meet Count Dooku and all that. That's really great. We need more canon backstory for Django. Like, I think there's some of it there. And of course, some of it's now been introduced with the Mandalorian where we find out he was a foundling and all that. But I would like that fleshed out more to the same extent that it was fleshed out in Legends. Django, I think, arguably, I think there's a strong case to be made that Django Fett is the most consequential one-and-done character in Star Wars. I mean, maybe it's it's him and Qui-Gon. I think the two of them are, like, up there. Uh, but maybe even Django kind of inches him out a little bit just because of the fact that he, like he's the template for the clone army and that he's he's this central essential figure in setting off this entire conflict into motion that like it's his soldiers it's these soldiers that are based off of him who will ultimately wage this war that will allow Palpatine to take power and allow the the empire to rise uh, makes him really, really important. I love the all of the scenes of Django in Attack of the Clones. I really, really like and enjoy. I like the fight in the rain between him and Obi-Wan. That's really great. The chase of the asteroids in Geonosis. Maybe my personal favorite, though, is the interrogation scene between him and Obi-Wan when they first meet in his apartment. I love the kind of dance the two of them are doing where basically they both know that they're bullshitting each other Django knows that obi-wan knows that he, who he is and obi-wan knows that Django knows but they're like doing this thing where they're like kind of trying to play it cool and of course like boba and ton we don't really know what's going on but i really really love that that whole back and forth with them is like really it's like polite but it's icy it's like it's a great combination i really enjoyed that and, you know, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, Django just adds so much to Boba. And I think that's that's maybe apart from, you know, him being the face, literally, of the clone army, that I think is this other really important contribution to the legacy of Star Wars. You know, we get to see for Boba the effect of 
not just not just the trauma of losing his dad and you know becoming orphaned, but also the trauma of having to see millions of copies of his dad fighting for the Jedi and the Republic. We get that in that great Boba arc in the Clone Wars at the end of season two, when he's disguising himself as a clone cadet. And you know, there's one particular moment where um, I'm just going off the top of my head where I think like he knocks over a clone trooper or whatnot, or maybe he has one captive and the helmet is off and he gets to see the face and it's his dad's face and he can't kill the clone by that because he looks like his dad. It's like he's killing his own dad. So just like what that does in terms of Boba's psychology of like, you know, you not just lose your dad, but then you've got all these people who look exactly like your dad going across the galaxy by the like millions and potentially billions. Like that's got to mess you up as a kid. And then again, this is something that I referenced earlier, but his hunt for the armor in the Mandalorian and like the personal importance that having his dad's armor, the, the value that that has for him and the attachment that he has to it. I think, again, sort of adds those layers to his character, his psychology, makes him more complex than just being like this cool background character. And again, I've been referencing earlier episodes of the show at multiple points. I'm going to do it here again. Go listen, if you haven't, to the episode Mandalorian Me, where I go into a lot more about Boba Fett and the Mandalorian and the kind of personal connections that I have to him there. So yeah, I think just like the inclusion of Jango Fett, I think, has just done so much to both enrich Star Wars in and of itself, but then also in that iterative fashion to enrich the characters that we already have. To take this figure of Boba Fett, who was sort of one-dimensional on his own just in the original trilogy, and give him all these layers and all of this history and all of this backstory and just see how he's much how he is in fact a very kind of complex character and person, I just think is really great and why he is my number one one and done character in star wars and there you have it that is my list of my 10 favorite star wars characters to appear in just one movie a lot of great characters who unfortunately did not make it on who i wasn't able to talk about but that's the nature of these things isn't it so what to expect on the next episode episode 23 will drop on august 8th and guess what crossing franchises again we've talked about wandavision we've talked about falcon and the winter soldier so naturally we're doing loki some really good points of star wars connectivity on that show so make sure to tune in for that one but before episode 23 next sunday i'll be releasing a bonus interlude episode to mark the one year anniversary of this weird little show the very first episode of a larger view of the force dropped on august 1st 2020 so I want to take a look back at some of the highlights of the last 12 months. So that'll be a lot of fun. Until then, make sure you are subscribed to this show. Please rate and review the show if you're able to do so. If you're not already following the show on Twitter, you can do so at a larger view pod. You can also follow me on Twitter at Demondum. And until next time, look for the force and you will always find me. 